You are listening to The Crisis Beat with Dr. Mark Crowther and Brady Wood. All right, everyone, welcome to The Crisis Beat. Uh, This is our episode number four, and today's date is December 13th, 2022. That's the date of our recording. My name is Brady Wood, and I'm a business owner and public relations uh, professional and aficionado. And I'm here with my illustrious co-host, Dr. Mark Crowther, who in one of his many other roles is the chair of medicine at uh, McMaster University. Mark, how are you today? I'm great, Brady. Uh, just doing a bit of traveling. I'm at the American Society of Hematology meeting in uh, New Orleans, having enjoyed uh, the first uh, face-to-face enormous meeting that I've been to since the uh, plague. And uh, great to see lots of friends and colleagues that I haven't seen for a couple of years. Lots of great new science uh, and uh, lots of interesting stuff going on in the news as well. So I guess we uh, we may as well just quickly touch base on our breaking news segment. Um, uh, and so, Brady, you wanted to just say a few things about uh, value destruction, I think, around some of pe- some of the people who've been in the news over the last couple of weeks. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it, we, it seems to be a running theme that we end up talking about, uh, uh, about Elon Musk and uh, Tesla and SpaceX and the takeover of Twitter. We discussed this last week, too. So as of this week, we've seen uh, lots of uh, continued episodes of Elon Musk kind of communicating haphazardly and it having different ripple effects. Uh, between sort of being pretty casual about terminations at Twitter to um, actually encouraging people to follow QAnon through a recent tweet. Um, but interestingly, uh, Market Watch is reporting that um, this is having a rollover effect to his other companies, where the public perception of Tesla has also has recently slipped from a net positive to a net negative uh, public perception based on a recent poll. Um, so I, I wouldn't necessarily say that. Elon Musk currently fits into crisis communications frameworks as typically talked about. But the other thing I would say is it certainly seems like he's in a continuous churn of crises of, uh, to some degree, his own making. So I think, Mark, there are there are two schools of thought on, on this person, which is one, he, he may be some kind of Machiavellian genius, and these communications are intentional. The other side of it, though, is it does start to feel a bit sloppy, and it is bleeding over into other areas of his existence. So um, to me, I, <clears throat> certainly my my school of practice would be a far more uh, careful and, um, and um, direct communication style than what he's deploying on these matters. But uh, maybe there's something to all this this whirl and bustle he's creating. Any, any thoughts on that, Mark? What do you see when you've... Uh... Yeah, it's, it, no, I, I continue to harbor a suspicion that he is a Machiavellian genius, genius given his successes in so many other domains. Um, uh, and it's hard to imagine that he doesn't have some larger reason or plan uh, why he's doing what he's doing. But certainly he does want to keep everybody on their back foot. There's no question about that with his communication strategy. As you and I have talked about um, extensively in previous episodes, one of the constants of crisis communication in this day and age seems to be to disobey the rules of crisis communication. <laughs> so it, along those lines, I just wanted to make some comments on another breaking news story, which is all over the media right now. And that is um, FTX and its related uh, entity Almeda or Alameda Corporation. So I think probably everybody's familiar with this, but just to point out that um, the uh, communications that both the style and nature uh, and sources and frequency and media used to convey them of the of the leadership of that corporation have probably been suboptimal for well probably since about 10 seconds after the company was founded but have consistently been highly suboptimal in terms of crisis management since the 
since the feces hit the bladed impeller device, as one might say. Um, and, and you know, I, I just the, the fact that it's very clear that the people who are running that corporation or who were running that corporation haven't taken crisis communication 101, that's very clear. And that the people who are now operating that company in receivership um, have taken crisis communication 101 and now are fighting on two fronts. One is trying to salvage value for the people who have assets that are sunk in that corporation. And the second is trying to manage the the uh, the fallout from the communication strategies of the people who used to run that corporation. It's actually been, I would say, extraordinarily interesting to watch um, and also extraordinarily distressing to watch to see how, yet again, you know, a multi-billion dollar corporation was taken down what by what sounds like in this case some fairly nefarious activity, but but coupled with an extraordinarily inappropriate uh, and extraordinarily it's not even poorly thought out because it's very clear there's no thought, but extraordinarily poorly articulated uh, communication plan. I don't know, Brady, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it's just it's certainly messy, and I think this um, um, remind me of the young gentleman's name who was running the company, Bankman Freed, SBF. Yes. So strange fellow in his communications in general, and then I think strangely glib afterward. And I agree the folks that are now running running point on this uh, in the receivership file are, are doing, a, I, I think, a kind of tight and by the book style. So I, I validate you in thinking that, Mark. I, um, I, I don't know where this all lands because there's obviously a massive fraud behind that. Yeah, yeah, I think the, the the legalities of it will all be sorted out. I have very little doubt that in addition to hastening the implosion of the company, um, he the the uh, proprietor, this SBF person, has probably also fed an enormous amount of incriminating evidence into various um, authorities over the last uh, couple of weeks uh, as a result of his uh, communication style. And of course, we would never want to be seen to use communications to hide nefarious activity. On the other hand, um, you know, I think a controlled communication strategy can make everybody's life less, less painful uh, when you find yourself in deep water. Yeah, I mean, it, that is the most surprising thing. Like, as I said, like, this guy was really glib, you know, it just seemed yeah. really loose about talking about it. And now he's been arrested and charged. Um, so he probably did not do himself any favors, that's for sure. Yeah, seems seems pretty odd to me. But uh Welcome to our observation that uh, it takes 37 years to create your business, although in this case it wasn't that long, and 37 seconds to destroy it. And of course, again, not to endorse illegal or nefarious activities, uh, which appear, at least there seems fairly strong evidence, underlie some of this collapse. On the other hand, I have very little doubt that the, 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 the collapse of the company and the damage that will ensue has been worsened um, or hastened or both um, by the communication strategy or lack thereof that has been employed. For sure. Well, Mark, I think we'll jump into like our main our main focus today. Um, so I think I think one of the things that we've tried to do here, and it speaks to the last issue, is we want to draw attention to the fact that there is the a right and good and correct way of practicing communications in a crisis that can salvage a business. And um, both of us, uh, you, you more than I as a physician, but I've had some involvement in academic health science centers as well, very familiar with a phrase that was generated at uh, McMaster uh, called evidence-based medicine. And I think we're interested in sort of evidence-based practice in public relations when it comes to crisis communications. I think we want to draw attention to it and analyze it and, and show how it can be of great value. 
But Mark, I wondered if you wanted to start in any way by just talking about uh, anything that comes to mind when about the history of evidence-based medicine. Yeah, Brady, thanks. I just it, I think this will help to set up the um, the subsequent discussion because uh, you know that the, the framework for evidence in practice is probably best established in medicine and is slowly um, infiltrating other domains. And and so just as background, here here's essentially what we're talking about. Um, the uh, when when a, when a clinician um, is training, training is very experiential, meaning that it is uh, you know you learn at the elbow of somebody else, uh, and and that was the traditional model. And then gradually, you know, textbooks came around, uh, sort of consolidated sets of data were used to help to train people more rapidly. But it still was not uh, necessarily based on consensus or best available evidence. Then, then what happens is uh, in the probably 70s and 80s, uh, there's an accumulating body of evidence from properly done clinical trials, um, which would help us to better discern exactly how we should be doing um, medicine. And, and the problem that um, Dr. Gorgayat at McMaster, who's a leader in this, along with many of his colleagues at McMaster and elsewhere, discerned was that these studies were being done. Um, but they weren't influencing practice. And the the example that uh, Gord holds up uh, in when he's talking about this is that, you know, we had had evidence for almost decades that drugs that dissolve blood clots favor favorably improve the outcome in patients who are having heart attacks. And yet, despite um, many studies showing that that was the case, uh, even in the in the in the 1970s and early 1980s, in many cases, when a patient presented to the hospital with a heart attack. Um, they were not receiving the therapy that we knew that worked. And that was because this sort of way that people had learned to treat this when they trained many years ago, there was no way to to, to modify that. They weren't in the mode of continuous and lifelong learning. And so uh, Gord and others working at McMaster and elsewhere um, came up with this term of evidence-based medicine, which is essentially a, a broad catchphrase for many different components of medical care where you assess and incorporate current best evidence into your practice uh, to help provide your patients with the best possible care for their medical conditions. And, and there are many aspects of this, but basically at a 100,000 foot level, what evidence-based medicine entails is um, using, uh, un, di examining, digesting, uh, reporting, and then using um, current best evidence to provide for the care of your patients. And you know, I'll, I'll give you a, a straightforward example of that. Um, uh, if you are, if you have a hip or knee replacement surgery, there's a high risk of developing blood clots. And uh, if you have had surgery done in the 70s, you probably wouldn't have received any drugs to prevent blood clots. Then literature and evidence grew, it was synthesized and presented. And starting probably in the 1990s, patients who underwent that kind of surgery would get drugs to prevent blood clots. And then in the late 1990s, early 2000s, um, new drugs came along, there's better quality evidence, the recommendation switched, and most hospitals switched. Then around 2010, new drugs came along, better quality evidence, most hospitals switched. And now, oddly enough, in the 2020s, as surgical care gets better, hospital stays are shortened. Um, there's now a whole series of studies, some still going on, some having been finished, that show that oddly aspirin is a very effective way of now preventing blood clots in these patients, whereas it wasn't before. And so practice is kind of going back to the future, and many centers, including our own, are now using aspirin for prophylaxis. Mm. That doesn't reflect some kind of revision to ancient history medicine. It reflects evidence-based medicine insofar as um, because of all these other changes in the background of this surgery, 
um, aspirin is now probably the best prophylaxis. And so that's a great reflection of the evolution of medical care under this external force of evidence-based practice. So I hope that's kind of a high-level summary of what it is. It's, it's applying evidence to your day-to-day -day practice in a way that makes things go better. And that's I think, sets us up really nicely for the discussion today. So, Brady, any more questions about that, or is that clear enough? No, I think that's really clear, and it does it does set us up nicely in, in the sense that what, what we're now looking at is the literature on public relations, and that there are, what I would say, evidence-informed studies that are being undertaken, uh, combined with theories that I think can yield some interesting, uh, some interesting outputs that should influence practice. The article today that we're looking at has some suggestions about, about practice in international domains, and I think we'll end up probably debating the, the conclusions that these folks draw. I certainly have some questions about their conclusions, but um, it, it starts with the theory, and we talked about this in our last episode of uh, image restoration, which was put forward by a guy named um, William Benoit, and he started writing about this in the, the late 90s. And, and really what he does is... I think the best way of describing it, Mark, is, uh, and we'll put links in the description of this podcast so that people can go to these articles and resources, but he kind of develops a framework or a taxonomy um, about how people respond to crises and, and what, and what the, essentially like what kind of tactics they might deploy. So I think it would be a mischaracterization to say Benoit's image restoration theory is a theory of how-to, so much as it's a taxonomy of uh, or a breakdown or a rundown of different tactics and approaches people, organizations use when faced with a crisis. But then interestingly, articles that have flown, um, that flowed from the original articles that he wrote in the late 90s, all seem to try to apply the framework, as this article does, um, to how people practice. So identifying which tactics they used of his framework and whether or not they were effective. And so uh, maybe I should do a quick rundown again of uh, the image restoration theory. So it basically says that um, your, the strategies that corporations and individuals use fall into denial, evading responsibility, reducing offensiveness, taking corrective action, or mortification, which is basically apologizing and asking for forgiveness. And then there are some subsets of those uh, theories. So for example, under evading responsibility, you may uh, provoke. Uh, you may you may claim that you're not you don't have you're not responsible because you're provoked, or that you lack knowledge, or you can make excuses uh, based on accidents, for example. So the article we're taking up today looks at image restoration theory through the lens of um, a real world case, which was um, the mad cow disease kind of crisis for U.S. beef. Uh, in the early 2000s. So I, I think in 2003, um, there was a, uh, some cases in, in the food chain supply of mad cow disease. I didn't, I didn't realize this, Mark, but I, uh, I don't know if you have any comment on this, but I find it fascinating to think about trade through this lens because apparently there's so much beef going from, at least in the early 2000s from, and maybe it's still the case, I don't, I don't know that much about this topic, from um, the U.S. to uh, East Asia, that the U.S. government would be involved in crisis communications if that supply chain was threatened reputationally. That, that kind of blew my mind in a way because I, I think they have, and this kind of plays into the story a bit, but they have other providers, you know, like you could get, I'm sure there's beef being grown in China, there's beef in Australia, but we're sending beef halfway around the world from in containers. And this is, this is a 
just I don't know why it's fascinating to me, but the, just the scale of our international trade is remarkable. Um, any comment there, Mark? Or I mean, yeah, I, I just let me give a quick uh, brief. So this is fundamental to this. I'll just give a quick update on what mad cow disease is because there's going to be people who aren't familiar. So oh yeah, great. Um, there's a there. You know, we we when we think about diseases, we generally think about diseases caused by viruses. So that's COVID, for example. Diseases caused by bacteria. So you know, that's a urinary tract infection, which many people are listening have probably had. Um, uh, mad cow disease is actually something completely different. Um, it's caused by uh, uh, what's what I what's known as an infectious protein. It's a weird, non-living cause of uh, of, of a of an illness. Um, they're called prions, uh, and there's a sort of handful of prion-mediated diseases. They're all characterized by a couple of things. So the first is you have to have an exposure. Um, the most famous type of this is something called kuru, which came from a developing nation where as a as a as a death ritual, they uh, practice ritual cannibalism, um, which resulted in people getting multi-generationally infected with these prions. Uh, there's a bunch of naturally occurring things. Um, there's a, a version that occurs in deer. There's uh, one that occurs in goats and there's one that occurs in cows. Uh, and and the reason it's called mad cow disease is that the cows suffer neurologic deterioration and as a result manifest um, unusual behaviors and and uh, and the the problem with mad cow disease is that um, if you are um, uh, it, when you're processing a cow you know you don't want to have anything left over so essentially everything is processed and um, certain foodstuffs contain uh, tissues or what used to be tissues from uh, organs that mm, that were prone to have these prions in them, brain tissues, nerve tissues, and some others. And, and so um, uh, there was, a, there was a, an incident or more than one incident, we aren't sure, back in the, in the um, uh, before the turn of the century, where in Britain, uh, some of this got into the food supply. Quite a number of people uh, came down with this disease. The problem is the disease takes an enormous length of time, 10, 15, 20 years to onset. Oh, wow. And, and yeah, it's, 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 it's amazing. And, uh, and so you know, the, the British uh, beef supply was then uh, contaminated. Uh, uh, but as you just said, there's enormous international trafficking in this. And and so um, uh, British beef was then extraordinarily suspect. Uh, one of the other things that happens is that, you know, food stuff, feed stock is made for cows. It contains the ground up remains of other cows. And as a result of that, yeah, so it was a self-propitiating thing where the cows ate the remnants of other cows, and thus got the, this mad cow disease. And and the um, uh, the the effect of this was that uh, there was a you know we could call it an epidemic, but it's a little e epidemic because it didn't. It's not like COVID where essentially everybody got this disease. It's it's a disease that only a handful of people got. Uh, and and as a result of that, the British beef industry was severely impacted. There was bans on um, the British beef being sold in multiple different jurisdictions, and and it had you know there was a long-standing prohibition, for example, against um, in Canada and I think in the U.S. as well around blood donation for people who, in some cases in some countries, had one meal in Britain during this period. They were banned for life from giving blood because of the risk of transmission of this disease. Hmm. That's recently been relaxed because there haven't been any cases in Britain for a very long time that I'm aware of. Um, and so the reason why people are afraid of this is uh, because, you know, you could have a, a, a mass exposure through a piece of meat or a derivative of meat from an animal. And, you know, you wouldn't know about it for 25 years or 20 years. And it could theoretically affect many people because, you know, a single exposure um, could result in meat 
byproducts that are spread amongst a, a very large group of people. So that that was the root cause of the fear of all this stuff. It's quite legitimate um, insofar as you know it, it is. It's one of these things where you have to put up a pretty you have to have a pretty broad screening strategy to try to prevent a very small um, uh, very small insult getting through. But that's kind of the background of the whole thing. That's what mad cow disease is, um, and uh, um, it's super important that. You know, there's a legitimate medical issue underneath this. What what isn't clear from my reading of the background material for this 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 presentation we're doing today is you know how much of that was actually real, i.e., how much of the American food supply actually was at risk of having mad cow disease prions in it, and how much of this was all just political action uh, and reactionaryism. Um, and I think Brady, you're going to talk more about that as we get a little bit more into the paper. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and maybe I'll just refresh everybody. So the paper we're looking at is called The Failure of Scientific Evidence in Taiwan, a Case Study of International Image Repair for American Beef. And this article appeared in the Asian Journal of Communication in April of 2012. And the authors are Wen Yu and Benoit, the original author of image restoration uh, theory. So it's it's really this, the article is looking at uh, this international controversy. And it's going to just draw, um, it's kind of going to triangulate itself, the analysis against Benoit's image, rest, image restoration theory. And then it sort of tries to, and, and Mark, maybe you can comment on this too, but I caution, I caution readers of this because these kind of social studies papers are a bit of a challenging read. Like I found this to be a really enjoyable article in terms of the drama and the story of it and the thinking. Um, but the the language is really choppy and it's chunky and it follows sort of a weird path of um, sort of um, what, what would you call it? But um, extrapolation of theories and lots of re unnecessary references. Very narrative. Um, and and uh, I, I was as I was reading it, I was thinking that the authors would have done well by paying their the upgraded subscription to Grammarly. Oh, so you found a few uh, extra commas or lacking punctuation? When you buy the – we are not supported by Grammarly, but the, when you <laughs> buy the upgraded, the upgraded version of Grammarly, but if they want to contact us, please feel free. Um, yeah, exactly. uh, it, it does not just spelling correction, but it does English and succinctness and style, and, and uh, certainly I use it every single thing I write, and it's extraordinarily helpful for me. Um, the, uh, however, um, these authors, uh, I think Grammarly would have um, had a fairly significant seizure given the writing style that was employed. Let's just put it that way. It would not have gotten into the literature that I publish in. Um, it would have required extraordinary uh, editorial oversight to get in there. But the social science literature, as you know, Brady, because you work in that space and I don't, is very, very different than the medical science literature. Yeah. I'm going to have to draw some, uh, I'm going to have to make some assumptions here as I read this up. But basically, the, the article kicks off that mad cow disease was found in the United States in 2003. And then American beef was banned by 65 countries and exports plunged 82% in 2004. Then this article um, fast forwards to about 2008, where there is a lot of um, resistance to American beef products in, in Taiwan in particular. And so the article wants to look at, okay, the, the, US, uh, the U.S. government and beef industry deployed certain tactics that from uh, through seen through the crisis communications, image restoration theory can be characterized a certain way. And then it's going to analyze sort of how they worked or didn't. 
and then suggest some conclusions on on what that all meant. So, I mean, I, I picked up on. So for me, I'll maybe spoiler alert. I'm jumping to the end. I just think the U.S. picked the wrong tactics. Like, I don't actually think, from what I read, like the the authors make the case there's some real cross cultural misunderstanding that underpins the reason why these communications failed. And to me, I think they just picked the wrong playbook in a way. So the U.S. tactics by the authors, and I agree with this, they're characterized by either denial, uh, so denying the, the degree of the problem, bolstering their own rep reputation, and, and minimizing the damage. And so they give a few examples. So they, the U.S. deployed a sort of a campaign of talking about uh, scientific research that said the beef was safe making some strange comparisons about the safety of eating U.S. beef, and including um, that it's, it's safer than riding a scooter through traffic, which a lot of folks in, in, this, in Taiwan were doing. Um, they sort of held teleconferences with American officials to talk about the merits and, and safety of U.S. beef. And then sort of backhandedly, they also issued sort of these, these kind of strange threats about sanctions and other impacts on on trade um so it's interesting there, there's not a lot here like you know to me when i think of like the tylenol case or maple leaf it's like you'd kind of expect to see some corrective action like what are we doing to make this safe instead of just what may be a typical kind of well i don't want to disparage all of the united states but those of us who don't live there kind of can sometimes experience some of their politics as being steamroller ish you know like it's our way or or else. And that sort of seems to characterize their communication here. And so the blowback was was like pretty, pretty significant. So, you know, you had even American-based brands like McDonald's saying, um, putting out ads that said they they use exclusively Australian beef to sort of maintain their uh, consumer appeal in Taiwan. Um, and then they did they did some polling here that just showed that massively ineffective communications by the U.S. in terms of how people uh, perceived it. So 83% of Taiwanese were still worried about getting diseases from U.S. beef and 64% uh, supporting a ban. And then thousands of people protested. And I didn't, I didn't really get all the context of how these protests erupted, but uh, tens of thousands of people protesting in front of government buildings about U.S. beef and then I just found this a humorous anecdote, but a student ate a, a cow dung burger in front of the presidential office to raise awareness of this and, and protest in a, you know, a kind of media bomb-ish way. I, I mean, obviously, that's something that's going to get picked up. Mark, did you have something to say, sir? Yeah, just that, you know, doing that would, uh, the risk of getting mad cow disease, even when you're eating British beef from the 1970s and 80s, was infinitesimally small. The risk of getting something horrific from eating cow dung is high. <laughs> so people have got their frames of reference out of whack here. <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, it, that just sounded like a. I, I'm glad they put it in the article because again, it adds some spice to what can be a dull social science uh, kind of paper. But um, and, then, and then interestingly, a lot of the blowback was like in direct opposition. So um, the one thing Taiwanese people said is like one of the American lines was we eat the same beef and we're fine. And they, and they were probably correctly based on what you just told us about mad cow disease, Mark. They said, no, 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 we don't eat the same beef. We actually eat different parts of the cow. In fact, a lot of what you sell us is leftovers because we eat awful and some of the other uh, byproducts of, of meat processing, you know, tendon and things like that. Um, 
And so they, they're basically they, they got onto this kick of, well, the U.S. are actually not eating the same thing. They're selling us their garbage. And, and by the way, it's the parts of the cow that might include the mad cow disease. So that kind of backfired. And then people were really annoyed at this uh, example of saying, oh, it's, uh, it, this, is, this is the same level of safety as, or higher level of safety than riding your scooter through traffic. So that's, that was a, a, a way that many people commuted to their jobs in Taiwan. So they were A, offended by it. But then, you know, I, I kind of I get on their side too, because I, I, I wouldn't really like, I don't like any kind of comparison to the safety of eating food with other awful outcomes. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to hear about like, Oh, uh, eating an ice cream sandwich is the same level of risk as getting a tattoo. Like, I don't really want to think about blood and death and violence when we're talking about food. I just want to know that the food is really, really safe. So, I mean, it seemed like they were kind of leaning on the same strategy that maybe airline travel took at a certain point about how it's safer than highway travel. The article doesn't say that, but that to me is a more act like that that makes sense as a comparison but this thing about scooters was just i think a crazy example yeah and i think um, all all these if you know when you're formulating a communication strategy y you always have to take the cultural context into consideration and and that's a I, I, that's a a problem with tone deaf communication strategies that i think probably are seen all the time the cultural expectations of people living in one East Asian country are going to be very different than those living in another East Asian country, and they're going to be enormously different than people living in North America. Uh, and people in Southern United States would probably have different interpretations of people living in the West Coast. And so, you know, I think one of the one of the things that communication strategies, be they crisis communication or in general, need to take into account are um, local factors and broad, except except at very high levels, it's extraordinarily hard to have a broad implementation strategy for any kind of communication that doesn't take into account local expectations. And Brady, you raised a great point of that in that the, uh, you know, that McDonald's ad that's talked about in that paper um, is, uh, is, you know, McDonald's is a global corporation, which is based in the United States, which probably has an overarching um, communication strategy, but you can see that it allows its local uh, arms uh, to implement their own advertising strategies to reflect local reality because the fact that McDonald's, which is, again, a global U.S. corporation, was advertising the fact it does not use U.S. beef is a sign that they understand that you have to, you know, your, your communication strategies have to reflect the local realities. Yeah. Well, I wonder, too, it does seem like, it doesn't say this in the article, but my gut says there's some kind of disconnect between the folks that were responsible for these communications about trade and the actual people they had on the ground. Because it does feel like they're pushing this kind of outsider narrative, as opposed to having coalitions of experts within Taiwan that could help bolster the case for U.S. beef. It doesn't sound like they had a lot of friends on the ground. And so it really talks about in the article as the U.S. scientists not being seen as credible. And, you know, ultimately, how did it end? Well, people got really angry and they removed U.S. beef uh, forcibly from various places in Taiwanese culture, like schools, I think, as mentioned, cafeterias and things like that. And and it really uh, it really ended in a sort of um, a, tr a trade blockade that was not totally formalized, but that probably really hurt the U.S. beef industry. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know that that is the key communication strategy again is that you know you need to understand your audience and you need to uh, deliver a message which is aimed at your audience. Be that 
you know, if you're communicating with the general public, you're going to communicate with very different styles. And if you're communicating with a bunch of professionals in, in a very specific domain, um, I've just been at the American Society of Metology meeting, as I mentioned earlier, and, and you know, the communication strategy that's used amongst the allogeneic transplant subgroups in that in that domain are going to be extraordinarily difficult and essentially non-understandable to the communication strategies that the people that I work with do in our domains. And 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 so if the US government came into this with a sort of high level, very self-centered um, my way or the highway kind of communication strategy, um, it's going it's it's extraordinarily likely to fail. And and at local engagement, trying to figure out what the the audience needs to hear in order to be reassured, it makes a lot more sense than just kind of wading in at a hundred thousand foot level and and basically sowing seeds of dissension amongst your clientele. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. That's well put, and I think that's almost something that these authors they didn't quite get right because they they argue that. It, the U.S. failure was cultural, but they really tie it to this um, East Asian concept of face about preserving respect, reputation, dignity, and prestige that would have you be in a less defensive or aggressive posture on, on doing apologetics, on apologizing. And so maybe that's true, but to me, it just felt like, I, again, I really thought that they did not align well with what would work. Like, even if you just look at previous product recalls, Tylenol being a good example, you know, if you have a product that's gone bad, even if it's not your fault, or maybe even if it's exaggerated, I think the strategy has always got to be, what did you put in place to fix this? Not just saying that everything's hunky-dory, even if it is, because based on what you said about mad cow disease, Mark, the risk was probably far lower than lower than low, but uh, had had tremendous kind of ripple effect. But yeah, not, the risk is risk is not zero, but it's very, very low. Um, uh, you have to have an extraordinary series of bad luck coincidences in order for this to transmit. Uh, yeah. so, I, I just don't see a world where, you know, they use a bit of an attack the accuser tactic. And I mean, maybe that's a good thing for a future episode is when would it actually be okay to attack the accuser? I, I think it's really only in a in a false accusation that's on 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 libelous or kind of dangerous grounds, but to say that there's you know people have concerns about your beef and you say well we're going to slap you with some trade sanctions uh, and or call you a liar I'm not saying that's what happened in this case I I don't it's just such a that's a tactic that I think should be used extremely sparingly period so I, I think they overestimated the heft that they had in Taiwanese culture and that their their messaging would penetrate. Um, and yeah, it's interesting, like the author said, another thing that was about kind of cultural differences that I didn't necessarily agree with, like they, they said that scooter thing, like they said, the the authors say the comparison fell flat because the scooters are dangerous to Americans, but not to Taiwanese people. But I, I just think it was a foolish comparison. Like, I'm not, I'm not sure that it's the cultural thing. I think it's, you know, again, comparing two types of travel for safety is a good thing, but people just want safe food. Yeah, you know? I totally agree with that. I just saw, Brady, um, one thing that people who are listening might be interested in further information on um, on uh, uh, prion diseases, given that it's kind of a fundamental underpinning. Uh, there's a podcast that I listen to very regularly called This Week in Virology, which I would strongly recommend for information on COVID and the various other infectious illnesses that we face nowadays. Uh, and uh, we'll put in the show notes a uh, reference to TWIV 950, which uh, is a very erudite discussion of prion diseases. It doesn't talk specifically about what we're talking about here, but it certainly talks about what, what prion diseases are and how they're transmitted and a lot of the fundamental underpinnings of what we're talking about today. 
So Mark, I think another thing, again, that, that comes up for me here in these, in these kind of tactics that I think is always useful is, um, you know, I think the line comes from Jesus ultimately, and I, I think we might have mentioned it on a, on a previous episode, but you can't always be a prophet in your own land. And I think sometimes you can't always just advocate for yourself in a crisis. So I think a big failure of these U.S. folks is it does not sound like they had allies on the ground in Taiwan that would help make the case um, successfully. So I don't I don't know what to make of that. But that to me sounds like a bigger disconnect than just them misunderstanding some cultural um, concept of what they what they call face in, in East Asian culture. But again, you know, I, I, I'm also open to being wrong on that. And maybe it's a little bit too um, uh, egotistical for me to think that I've, I've got a clearer line of sight than these authors on this on this case. But I do think the authors very clearly articulate that the the communication strategy that, that was used fell flat, and they do. Yeah. You know, and and there's what what you're saying and what they're saying are extraordinarily congruent. That the that irrespective of the underlying reason why it fell flat, it clearly fell flat. Yes. Yeah. And 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 you know this is a good article in the sense that back to this notion of evidence, they've got some polling, they've got some anecdotal information and other information from media reports and other sources that really do show that this didn't work. And then they've got the hard outcome of the limitation that was put on the U.S. beef trade from this. So anyway, for me, Mark, this uh, this was a really interesting case in the in the vein of us thinking about potential evidence evidence based or evidence informed practice. One thing I did wonder that if you would comment before we we stop uh, for the episode, the the rigor of science here though is is not very high in like social science compared to academic medicine. They're they're worlds apart in terms of truth, in terms of objective truth. So we've got loose evidence here, but it is you know quantitative. Um, evidence based practice in medicine is based on double blind randomized controlled trial studies and 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 a lot more depth and and nuance do you ever see us being able to get there in something like communications well i think that's a great question brady I, yes and no no it's it's much harder to do some of the extraordinarily rigorous methodology that we use in evidence based practice like as you just said you know blinded randomized controlled trials very hard to do when you're dealing with human subjects um, uh, but, but, you know, a couple of the key fundamentals that, that are important in both, which there's a lot of room for improvement in the psychology, sociology literature is the bigger the sample size in general, the better the study, not always, obviously, but, but in general, you know, making firm conclusions based on 10 patients is going to be less reliable than making firm conclusions based on a hundred. So if anyone's listening out there, who's working in the field, you know, the, the more, the more observations you can make, the better. Um, the second is what we call independence, which means that, um, you know, getting comments from multiple different independent sources and collating them is going to be more valuable than getting multiple comments from a small group because the small group is going to have a set of opinions. So getting 10 opinions from 10 people is never going to be as valuable as getting one opinion from 100, um, uh, which is a principle of what, what we do in evidence-based practice. And then the, the, I think probably the most important is look at the look at the results and try to figure out some way of objectively reviewing them. Don't just read them and you know, be really taken with one of the opinions and say, well, that must be the most important one because I think it's the most important one. We we, we colloquially refer to that as eminence-based medicine and, and we are highly highly disparaging of it. Um, and it really isn't a good way to to move the, the science forward. A much better way of moving the science forward is to um, you know, look, develop an objective way of looking at the literature, define a priori what's going to be defined as a success 
and then only accept that part of your observational data that that is actually a success. And and there's there's you know that there there's lots of room for improvement in medical research, uh, and there's lots of room for improvement in sociology research. Uh, but I think uh, there's there's some more very significant intrinsic limitations in this kind of research, which are just going to be impossible to overcome. So in the end, much of what is talked about in this kind of literature is, to be quite honest, going to be um, what we would call observational, uh, because that's really the only methodology that's available. In some circumstances, you can do randomized interventions, and I would strongly encourage people to do that. It provides much better quality data, but you can't randomize countries to differing communication practices from the U.S. government. That just won't work because the numbers are going to be too small. And so, Mark, my, my gut says on some of these, it's, it is wise to read with a cr critical lens. Like I saw someone online recently talking about um, inter-partner violence based on age gaps between men and women in a marriage. And then the main study they were referring to was like a, a Nigerian study of like 30 couples. And so to think that something that narrow can be generalized to all of humanity is, I think, relatively suspect. And similarly here, there are always good observations I think we can take and learn from these articles, but I also don't think we should look at them as a cornerstone to practice without using some real critical thinking to, to think about what, what actually would hold up in other scenarios. Yeah, I agree completely. And you know that's a great example where um, if you really believe there is an observation to be made there, you know, it, it, it would be it, it, doing that kind of research would be hard. But to get 10 patients is probably very hard to add another 10 is probably not as hard to add another 10 is going to be even less hard. Uh, and, and so that that study would have been much more valuable if it was going to make comments about North American context, if it incorporated 100 couples from North America rather than a small number of couples from somewhere else. You Again, broad generalities might be important, um, unknown, uh, but but you you really you really can do a lot to increase the rigor of observations like that. Great. Well, I think that's a wrap for our meeting. Is there anything else, Mark, that you wanted to bring up today uh, as we as we head out of the crisis beat? No, not at all, Brady. Thanks for your time again. I think uh, hopefully people listening will find this uh, interesting and useful as we kind of meander through subjects. We uh, we're, we're getting these things out pretty regularly. Uh, we're going to try to get to a regular schedule of production um, and hopefully in the new year. But right now we're both pretty busy and it's uh, we're getting them done as we can get them done. Yeah. Well, thanks to our listeners and invite people to contact us with comments or questions. And uh, we, we will get back to you as well and uh, look forward to seeing you uh, next time on the Crisis Beat. So, hey now, Mark, I think you did a great job. Thank you for joining me and uh, to be continued. Yep. Thanks, Brady. We'll see you all later. Yeah.